Our sermon, as I mentioned, is from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. If you'll go ahead and turn there quickly, if you haven't marked your place there already. We're continuing our series through uh, the book of Ephesians, if you're just joining us this morning. And um, sort of continuing this passage, we're going to read verses uh, 1 through 13. I'm glad I just reminded myself of that. We're going to read 1 through 13. But uh, the sermon will come from 7 through 13 as we continue this series and this thought about the, the mystery of the gospel revealed. The message this morning I've called the mystery and the ministry. So if you look in your Bible now, I'm going to ask you if you're able to stand in honor of the reading of God's word out of attentiveness to his voice and just reverence for his authority as he speaks. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God may now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Well, Father, we do thank you, our good and faithful God, for your word and that you have not left us wandering about in this dark creation, grasping around, wondering what to do, what is true, where to go and how to get there. Lord, you've spoken into creation, and it's been written down for our hearing. We thank you for that, Lord, and we open your word now, as always, with expectation that you have something true and living to say to us today. You know not only what we have voiced today, but, Lord, you know what's going on in the lives of every person here and even what awaits us that we don't know about yet. And so in light of that, God, and you know our need, we pray that you would speak, O Lord, your word by your spirit through your servant to your people for your glory. God, I do pray that you would move me out of the way and use my voice as your instrument today and prove, Lord, that your power is made perfect in my weakness. In Christ's name, amen. And you may be seated. Well, I'll begin with the question, what should pastors be preaching about these days? 
Maybe I'll just pass the mic around again. We'll see if there are any opinions. Uh, actually, no, I won't. And, uh, and let me begin by saying, actually, it's, it's very rare uh, that I have people tell me what they think I should preach. It, it really is very rare. So I'm not uh, sort of uh, venting or on a soapbox or anything. I am quite aware, though, that in the broad you know, Christian community, there are plenty of people who have opinions on the matter. And maybe some, even among us, who have opinions, they just don't say it to me. You say it to one another, perhaps. But usually, when, when, as Christians talk about and think about what pastors ought to be preaching these days, it usually involves things like, at least to what I hear and read and see, uh, taking a stand on some cultural issue, right? Or speaking out on something, again, sort of a cultural, moral uh, nature. Or it may, in other circles, among other people, involve talking about things that are practical and useful in everyday life. And so when you hear people uh, opining about what, what pastors ought to be preaching about, it often falls in one of those categories. And likewise, there seems always to be a voice saying... Not just about pastors, but just that the church needs to change. Have you heard that? You might have said that. And actually, uh, there's, again, probably a measure of truth um, in kind of all of these things. But the church needs to change in order to stay relevant to the culture, some people might say. Uh, in all of that, and all of those sort of opinions about what pastors ought to be preaching, what the church ought to be doing, how the church needs to adapt and change, and so forth. And all of that, the assumption seems to be that the church ought to adjust according to what people need and want and are seeking and kind of adapt to those realities. Well, Ephesians uh, chapter 3, verses 7 through 13 that we just read here, continues a description of the mystery of the gospel revealed. And we talked last week about the fact that the gospel is a mystery, that it's made known by revelation, not by uh, persuasion, not by nagging or cajoling, right? It's by revelation of his spirit and that it, it came to us, even who have heard it and received it and believed it at great cost. So he continues this uh, description of the mystery of the gospel revealed, and we see here that the very nature and purpose of the minister, the pastor that is, the ministry and the church, the very nature of those, the minister, the ministry, and the church are wrapped up in God's plan to unveil the mystery that was hidden for the ages. The point being that as uh, many of us have uh, kind of thoughts and opinions about what the church ought to be doing, what pastors ought to be preaching, God has a perspective to give us on how all of that, the ministry of the minister and the life of the church, his purpose for them are wrapped up into this great cosmic purpose of unveiling a mystery that's been hidden for the ages. And so let's look quickly this morning at those uh, elements that I just mentioned. First of all, the minister, what does he tell us here about the work of the minister? Or rather, the minister himself, I guess, we'll get to the work. In verses 
7 and the first part of verse 8, he uh, mentions in a number of ways the minister. But we know that Paul didn't just like grow up wanting to be a Christian missionary, right? In fact, he didn't grow up wanting to be a Christian at all. Didn't know what that was growing up. But he didn't just decide one day, I think I'm going to be a minister of the gospel. You remember, in fact, last week when we look back at the book of Acts, he was recounting his testimony of being on the road to Damascus, persecuting Christians and so forth. And and Jesus just met him, knocked him down, gave him new directions and a new plan and a whole new life. He wasn't seeking that out at all. He was chosen for that task, even while he was in uh, in the process of persecuting Christians. And so he says in verse verses 7 and 8 about him himself, what's really true about every minister of the gospel. Of this gospel, look at all the, the sort of passive voice kind of stuff in these verses. And these are the kind of reasons why I urge you uh, always to have a Bible of your own in front of you. But he says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. He's a minister of the king. He didn't, again, just decide, uh, you know, it wasn't like, Saul, what do you want to be when you grow up? And like you just uh, decide, I'm going to be the king's minister. You know, the king, like in real life, particularly in days when kings actually exerted more authority, even absolute authority, a king had a minister or ministers in his court that did a whole variety of things, right, to carry out the work of the king, to work in, in his authority and so forth. But none of the ministers just decided uh, they were going to be the prime minister or the minister of war or even to be the herald for the king. Nobody just decided that. They're chosen by the king for that task. He, he, he appoints them by his will, his sovereign will, for his good purposes. The minister belongs to the king. Uh, a thought that comes to my uh, mind, I haven't mentioned the herald, is you may, uh, you can imagine the sort of, I don't know, silliness of the idea that the herald would, would step out onto, you know, the, the, in front of the podium, as it were, or whatever the platform would be, where he's going to cry out to all the people, and he unrolls a scroll that the king has given him to read, and he goes... Ah, roll that back up. What, what do you want to hear? <laughs> you know, what's on your heart today? He doesn't, he doesn't work for the crowd, does he? He works for the king. He's, he's called, set apart by the king to minister on his behalf, to herald the message that the king has. That's the nature of the minister himself, and he's got a purpose for, the, for every minister who stands in the pulpit in the house of God. He's got a purpose 
not only for the people assembled right there within his hearing, but in the grand scheme of all that he's doing in the whole history of the universe. That's the minister. Number two, the ministry. Verses 8b, the second half of, uh, of, of verse 8 and 9. He talks about the nature of the ministry that the minister has given. He says, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light to everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things. What should pastors be preaching? Well, it starts with the unsearchable riches of Christ. And one of the things that's true about the unsearchable riches of Christ is that they are unsearchable. And if the preacher were never to preach anything other than the riches of Christ, he would never run out of sermon material. And that's why that's a priority and at the top of the list. Unsearchable like that, that word and the very concept is hard to get our minds around for a reason. I mean, because it's talking about something uh, just by definition that's sort of beyond reach, beyond measure, beyond comprehension. But trying to sort of access in our own understanding the unsearchable riches of Christ, there may be a couple of uh, perspectives that would be helpful. A Scottish minister named Samuel Rutherford wrote in one of his letters, Christ is a well of life, but who knoweth how deep it is to the bottom? And oh, he says, what a fair one, what, a, what an only one, what an excellent, love, lovely, ravishing one is Jesus. Listen to this. Put the beauty of 10,000,000 worlds of paradises into one. It would be less to that fair and dearest, well-beloved Christ. Let me say that again to see if we can even just hear it all. We won't understand it today, perhaps, but put the beauty of 10,000 worlds of paradises in one. It would still be less than the fair and dearest, well-beloved Christ. That begins to give us some perspective on the unsearchable riches of Christ. And thinking about the, the kind of the concept of unsearchable, unfathomable depths. In fact, we, uh, we sang a phrase in one of those songs earlier about um, how wide, how deep uh, is the love God has. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure. That's another one that we sing. But you may have heard recently the news about the submersible vessel that was, had been designed for this mission to explore the scene of the Titanic wreck. Uh, it was, the, the vessel itself was called the Titan. It was an innovative design just in its own right and made with um, newer materials. It was, it was built, it was constructed in a way that these submer- submarines and other submersible vessels haven't been built before. 
And uh, so it was trying to go to the depths of where the Titanic is, which I think is something like 27,000 feet below the surface. And the vessel was not strong enough to withstand the water pressure at those depths. And so somewhere like 1,600 feet, it was either 1,600 feet or 1,600 meters before it got to that depth, it just imploded. Uh, tragic end to the mission and to the lives of all of those uh, who were on board. But it reminded me, that story reminded me, number one, of how incredibly deep the ocean is. And it really is, I mean, for most of history, it has literally been unfathomable in the sense that a fathom was how they measured the depths of water. And there were places that just were beyond measure. They didn't have instruments to measure how deep that would go. But even now that they can, it's still, in a practical level, beyond reach in a lot of ways um, and beyond comprehension for most of us. It reminded me, too, how uh, in in spite of all the technological advancements uh, that have made ocean exploration possible, and there are many of them, technological advancements, that that, that is, But in spite of all of those, only a fraction uh, of the world's oceans have been explored. Now, this is in a day and age, again, where we've got, we we send people to outer space. Um, You know, we've got all of the uh, artificial intelligence uh, coming around in development or whatever, all the digital stuff going on. We've explored the surface of the earth, charted almost all of it, explored the north and the south poles right? Over 6,000 people have climbed to the top of Mount Everest. But humans have explored only 5 to 10% of the world's oceans. Um, and it was interesting that in, in uh, sort of reading about this, from 1995 to 2003, there was an unmanned submersible uh, vessel, uh, kind of robotic um, remotely operated vehicle, I guess they call them, that explored the deepest point in the ocean over a period from 1995 to 2003. Actually, there were a number of them that went down there. This one vehicle in particular um, collected samples from the ocean floor over that uh, period of time and included 350 species. And yet, scientists uh, estimate that there may be still thousands of undiscovered species in the oceans that we haven't yet discovered. That is because the ocean, even though we have all the technology, all the means of exploring it, it is on a practical level still unsearchable. Now, I elaborate that point for a reason, to try to give us some concept of what it means that the riches of Christ are unsearchable. Whatever we've discovered, whatever we've shared testimony about of his goodness toward us, we have not begun to plumb the depths of the riches of Christ. 
And that's what it is. That's the, the nature of the, 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 the very, at the most basic level, the nature of the ministry he has given to ministers is to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. And why is that? Well, not unrelated to the point MH made earlier. We're made for him and not for each other, right? We, we live our whole lives thinking our purpose is found here and among one another and so forth. But uh, he's got something, a higher purpose for us. We spend our lives, rather than plumbing the depths of the unsearchable riches of Christ, we spend our lives digging in the landfill looking for treasure. I mean, that really is a fair analogy of, of what we consume ourselves with as people on this earth. We, we spend our time in the landfill digging for treasure and often getting disheartened and dismayed that we find so much trash there. What becomes a source of anxiety on our hearts all the time, what has us weighed down and overburdened and sometimes crying out to God in prayer is because there's trash in the landfill. And it's depressing that once again we dug deep and came up with rubbish. Because he's given us instead the unsearchable riches of Christ. And our attention ought to be directed there. Our affection ought to be directed there. And, and, and really the devotion of our lives ought to be directed there. And I'm preaching to myself as much as I am to anybody else, knowing that somehow, in spite of the clear revelation of that truth, the landfill seems uh, enticing over and over and over again. And that's why, beloved, that's why we need, we don't need sermons on six tips to turn trash into treasure. <laughs> Five ways to find the really good stuff deep in the trash heap. We need to hear about the unsearchable riches of Christ that our hearts might be stirred up And that our love might be deepened for him. Well, that's the, the ministry, the minister and the ministry. He also says something here about his purpose for the church in this whole grand scheme of unveiling the mystery that's been hidden. Look at verse 10. And I want you to notice, if you're looking at a Bible again in front of you, look at who's the audience and what is his objective? Who's the audience and what is his objective? He says that so that... Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The audience, the rulers and authorities in heavenly places, not people sitting in the pew, right? Uh, what's the objective? To make known the manifold wisdom of God. Now again, like so many Bible phrases and words, that one could just go right over our head because what the heck does that mean? Well, let me make an attempt to explain it. Manifold, I mean, you, many of you know what that word means, many-fold. Like many, it's multivaried. Or another definition of that might be marked with great variety of colors. This particular Greek word that's translated as 
manifold, marked with a great variety of colors. And so we think about the, the beautiful story that God is writing on creation, the beautiful picture that he's putting together, the beautiful work of art that he is making out of the whole history of the universe. Multicolored, multivaried. Can you recall a time being captivated by the beauty of something that was multicolored? A garment, perhaps, that caught your attention. Somebody wearing something multicolored. Or a rug, um, a mosaic of some sort. We had that experience uh, traveling recently, visiting some cathedrals. I know some of you have uh, visited some cathedrals uh, in Europe and perhaps other places as well. And I've had, had opportunity, I've not traveled much in all my life, but when I travel, I love to visit churches. Uh, churches of all sorts, old churches primarily. Um, but old churches, whether they're, they're small and rustic or they're enormous and elaborate, I just love visiting churches, but uh, some of the cathedrals in Europe are just stunning. And uh, one in particular that uh, we saw recently was a cathedral in Siena. But, it, but like others built in uh, you know, the, the, the late medieval period and the Renaissance, I mean, part of their design is that when you walk in the door, they're constructed in such a way that your eyes go up, right? It just is it's hard not to almost. It's designed in a way for you to look up and then to be awed. It's, it's, it's almost like, I mean, you can, you can sort of watch and listen to people walk in and it's, it is almost this involuntary experience. Look up and then gasp at the vastness and the beauty. So it's, that's true of, to one degree or another of almost all of them. Uh, in Siena, I was surprised to, to, to be finding at one of the most beautiful ones that I felt like I had been in. It struck me uh, as especially beautiful because, particularly of all the color, tiled ceilings, tiled floors, gold trim, stained glass in all kinds of places. And literally everywhere you look, all the little nooks and crannies and all the little chapels they have along the way, even the rooms on the side that lots of people don't even know are there. You go through the door and just that little space by itself, stunningly beautiful, multicolored, manifold beauty at every turn. And so you wait outside to go in and walking in the door is like an unveiling of this majestic, beautiful, awe-striking scene and experience. Now, I, I share that because, again, I think what we're supposed to get a sense of here is that God's plan in, in redemption in keeping this mystery that he refers to hidden for the ages and then revealing it as he has is to unveil 
the manifold wisdom that he alone possesses and how he has at every turn in history been working things together to make the beautiful picture that the, the, the enemy, that all the, uh, the heavenly forces of darkness will be dumbfounded by when they see who he's redeemed that they thought they had held in captivity. That somebody who's lived a life of addiction and bondage of, all, of, of the worst sorts, he has made his very own, written a whole new life, whole new story on their life, and just absolutely confounding the enemy who thought he's worked all things together for his own purposes, his own destructive purposes, only to find that, that all of it, all of it at every turn, every nook and cranny of creation, God has worked together for his good purposes, for his glory, and that he's made beautiful. The manifold wisdom of God revealed uh, to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. And listen, I, I want to keep pointing to, we're going to get to Ephesians chapter 4 and beyond where he gets very practical about, in light of what he's been sharing, the first half of this book, how therefore do we live? He gets very practical. And I never want to make uh, light of the practical burdens that people face in their lives, the struggles that people are going through right now, this week, some of which we just prayed for early in the service. I never want to sound as if I'm making light of that. But beloved, what we need to know is that God is doing something so much bigger than your life and mine, than your problems and mine. In fact, that your life and mine and the good that he works in them become little colorful tiles in that extraordinarily beautiful mosaic that testifies of his glory, of his manifold wisdom to the heavenly beings of how great he is. So that even as we gather together as a church, our purpose as the church in just being the church is to glorify him before all the rest of creation, of the heavens. Is that like mind-blowing to you? To the, the, what he's done in your life is a little tile in the whole picture that redounds to his glory. And so part of the reminder for that is that as even as we bring our cares and burdens as he, as he invites us to do and we cast them upon him and we pray about them and we hope that when we, wor- we come to worship um, that there's a word for us personally that somehow we're lifted up. Even as that's true, this isn't about us. And certainly what's true is that you're not the audience. You or the people sitting in church ever in any church are not the audience. And I'll say parenthetically, I am very, very, I try very intentionally never to call this the stage. Um, Because it, it, you know, of course, 
in, in churches, uh, historically, uh, the space up here would be called the chancel. Uh, that's a word that doesn't mean much to anybody. And, and I don't, I, it doesn't bother me to, to quibble about such things so much. But stage has a connotation that people stand up here and perform for the people who are sitting out there listening and watching. And the congregation of the people of God is not the audience. The rulers and authorities in the heavenly places are the audience. And we're part of the choir. And we're part of the art gallery. <laughs> we're part of the beautiful display that testifies to the greatness and the glory of God. His manifold wisdom his unsearchable riches, always to the praise of his glory. And so God, in your life and mine, through your life and mine, and through the life of the minister, the ministry and the church is doing something far greater than he can comprehend. And the good news for us is that as a part of that beautiful work that he's doing, there remain for us an unsearchable depth of riches that are ours in Christ Jesus. That if we spent all of our years just trying to plumb the depths of those riches, we would never exhaust them. But our life would be far better than it will ever be digging in the landfill. Let's pray. Lord, we do just praise you. We praise you, God, and we acknowledge we can't fathom the unfathomable. We can't search the unsearchable. And we can't get our minds around how great is the plan that you are unfolding. How great is this unveiling that you have uh, that you have made and that you are making, that you have still in store, Lord, this grand work of yours, of the whole history of creation that will leave the angels rejoicing and demons trembling, but nobody questioning that you are the only Lord of the universe. And God, I pray that in some way that only you can do by the power of your spirit, that you would bring that home to the hearts of individuals here, that we might really understand a little bit more of what that has to do with us and our real life circumstances and how your greatness and your beauty as we just devote ourselves to exploring it, how that might change our lives forever. So Lord, you know each one where we are and how we might need to step into those realities. Lord, would you lead us even now to do so? In Jesus' name, amen.